Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes, a podcast about lawyers using their authentic voices to change the world. The first thing is that more important than your law degree or your job title or your salary is the relationships that you have as a professional. And over the course of your career, deep quality relationships with really talented people yeah. is going to be way more valuable to you than your GPA, where you went to law school, what your first job was, what any of your jobs were. That's what's going to assure your career success. You can always get lucky and get a great job, but having that deep network of quality professional relationships is an insurance policy. It's a career booster. It's an opportunity multiplier. It's, it's all these things. And so relationships are, are, are key and spend the time to develop them. Don't just sit behind your desk doing the work and putting in your hours. Put, doing, the, doing great work and putting in your hours will keep you from getting fired. But it won't keep you from getting laid off if your firm blows up or goes under or has trouble, loses a big client, loses, you know, uh, practice area dissolves. Welcome to BS, Beyond Stereotypes. I'm your host, Merle Vaughn. Here to BS with me today is Richard Amador, whose story I find fascinating and who will no doubt inspire all of you to embrace your authenticity. Hey, Richard, how are you? Hey, Merle, great to be here. Good, thanks for joining us. I really, really appreciate it. Um, so I generally, what I do is I give people a little, I. Uh, idea about your background. Uh, So I'm going to do that. Uh, I want to start by saying that you went to UCLA uh, undergrad with a BA BA in poli sci. Boo, I went to USC. Fight on. Um, Well, people make mistakes, you know. Nobody's (laughs) holding it against you, Merle. (laughs) Okay, that's a good one. Touche. we actually attended UC Berkeley together. We both re- uh, received our JDs at what's then called Bolt Hall, now UC Berkeley School of Law. We were there at the same time, but I don't think we knew each other. Uh, well, you you were popular. I was just a wallflower. So I knew who <laughs> you were, but you had no idea who I was. Oh, I'm sorry. That's oh, okay. Well. It's, it's not like you ignored me. You just didn't know I existed. That's all right. Well, but now look at this. I know you existed. You exist. I've invited you to be on my podcast. So everything's come full circle. Absolutely. And I got to say, it's I, I, I took a look at some of the interviews that you've done. And even though I wasn't able to listen to all of them, I looked at who you interviewed. And I, uh, I, I don't know how I accidentally ended up on this list, but the rest of those folks are pretty darn impressive. Well, you belong here. Look, I I like to talk to folks uh, whom I find interesting, who I think will be inspiring, uh, particularly to lawyers of color, to young lawyers, and also who can 
give some advice to potential employers, um, uh, whether it's at companies or law firms, about you know how to uh, how how to uh, retain uh, young lawyers and particularly lawyers of color. So I thought you know based on some of the things that I've seen that you've done, some of your LinkedIn posts. Uh, your blog that we'll talk about later that you'd be the perfect person to talk to. Thank you. Yeah, I I, I don't know if people want to listen, but oh boy, do I have a lot to say on those topics. <laughs> Great. So uh, for all of our listeners, Richard is the managing partner of Sanchez and Amador LLP. Uh, you've had that firm for 27 years. Uh, I believe you have about 14 attorneys and you specialize and employment and business uh, trials, correct? Yes. And we, we also have a we uh, sorry. We also have a banking practice, uh, which I have nothing to do with. We have some amazing, brilliant transactional lawyers um, that went to second-rate schools like Stanford and, and such. <laughs> uh, and and so they do that practice. And then the team that I lead is uh, employment lawyers and, and we handle single plaintiff employment litigation as well as uh, sensitive internal investigations. Got it. And so, you know, and, and I, you know, you guys can look up Richard on LinkedIn, link in with him. Um, you, you know, you you talk about all of the accolades and and things that you've uh, received. Your peer review rated uh, AV by Martindale Hubble, a uh, fellow uh, and one of the highest ranking. Um, wait, so you're a fellow in the College of Labor and Employment Lawyers, um, and so I could go on and on, but I'm not gonna. <laughs> uh, good. So, but but <laughs> but but it is impressive. So so the uh, one of the things that I wanted to ask is I'm going to ask you about your background after this. But I wanted to one of the things I find interesting is that it doesn't look like you ever worked for a big firm. Is that true? I, no, I did for for exactly two years. Uh, it's I, it's not on my resume. It's not on my bio. It, I, I I sucked at it, um, and uh, so I did that for a couple of years, and then I worked for a small firm um, for an amazing trial lawyer who, who has dozens and dozens of trials under his belt. He's now a LA Superior Court judge, uh, Michael Stern, and uh, I worked with him for for a few years before starting the firm. So I was about four and a half years out uh, before I started the firm. So I got out of school in '88, and we started the firm. I want to say in early 94, although it might have been 95. I don't know. It's it, They all blend together after 30 years. Wow. And you know what? We did almost exactly the same thing. I, I went to, uh, I, went, went, I graduated with you in 88 from Berkeley, uh, went with Cooley, uh, a big firm, as a mm -hmm. transactional lawyer. And I lasted about four years before I left and became a GC of a small um, black hair care company. So uh, that we have that in common as well. Yeah, and I, I tell you, I, it's funny. I, I mentor so many young lawyers who as junior lawyers are far, far better lawyers than I ever was as a junior lawyer. And it's interesting, you know, because I've got 25, 30 years on them, 
or 20 in some cases, you know, I, I know a lot more, I have a lot more skill, et cetera, and experience. But if you were to compare apples to apples of way back when me to them now, it's like I couldn't hold a candle to these to these young folks. And so I, I just it's really exciting for me to to use the things that I've learned over the years to help them do better than I could ever have dreamed of as a young lawyer. And and that's got to be inspiring for a lot of people because, you know, I'm a I'm a recruiter and and most uh, uh, even in-house, most companies believe that the best trained lawyers come from AMLAW, at least AMLAW 200 uh, firms. And I'm I'm really intrigued by how you were able to become such a good litigator and trial lawyer without having gone through through that. Well, so it, it, here's my secret: is that I didn't have enough work to fill my plate, so I could spend all the time I needed to um, learning learning my craft. Uh, Got you know, it. When we first when we first started the firm, uh, you know, we were we were there was three of us, and we were all you know basically what would now be called mid-level associates at at other firms and so we didn't have much in the way of of a client base and so i could spend 15 hours writing a motion that should only take four or five or six or seven and just making it sink i could spend time going in and watching trial lawyers try cases and learn from their successes and failures i read i probably read like 20 trial books over the years, some of them multiple times, um, attended a ton of CLEs. I went to different things over the country where I could see really like these all day things where you've got trial masters coming in and talking about trials that they've had and, th and tools that they use. So I could spend a lot of time developing my craft. And then one of the other things that's been really key for me is um, um, continuous improvement, right? So. And I still do this today. If I take a deposition and I handle a negotiation, a mediation, a presentation, whatever it might be, I'm always both asking for feedback as well as giving myself feedback so that I'm constantly striving to get better. Even now, uh, in, in everything that I do, I'm trying to be better at it. And that's made it made a huge difference. And, and just going back for a second to your comment about the training with AMLA. You know, one of the things that I do best is take depositions, especially plaintiffs and single plaintiff employment depositions. And I teach lawyers all over the country how to do it. And some of my best students are second to fifth and sixth year associates in the quote unquote best law firms in the country. No mm -hmm. one's ever taught them how to take a deposition. You know, they they went to a seminar that their firm put on once. Maybe they went to the NIDA depot training. But no one's ever really sat down with them and taught them how to take a skillful deposition and deal with a difficult opposing counsel and an evasive witness. And so I teach these lawyers how to take depositions. And in many cases, by their third, fourth deposition, they're they're doing better than the partners in their law firms. And that's that's really cool to watch. And that's that's my goal is to help young lawyers of color to be the best, because that's the only way they're going to succeed is they have to be better than everybody else, unfortunately. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later too. I, but I'm still I still want to talk a little bit about okay this business. You you've been in because everybody knows the practice of law is is also a business. At 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 what point did you said you you know you you didn't have enough work? At what point did that change? At what point where 
did you say to yourself, this is going to work. This, this, I, I'm going to hang, we're going to hang in there and this is actually going to work because you've been doing it 27 years. So clearly there's a point at which it clicked. Uh, so uh, the best an analogy I can come up with um, is is a scary one, um, and it's probably overly grandiose, but I sort of think of it like the American experiment in democracy. It can always fail, uh, but we have to make it work. And I, I, we've just been, we, we refuse to fail. And, you know, in the Great Recession, we really did fail as a business. Um, we, we were broke and my partner at the time that, that, at that point, it was just one of the two other founding partners and partners and I, um, uh, were, were going forward with the law firm. The other had gone back to big law. And so the our business just froze up. Right. And, mm -hmm. and we, we did not have the wherewithal to withstand that. Um, but we did by basically not getting paid for many, many months at a time. Um, and then our employees all agreed to a, a 10% across the board pay cut. And we just barely survived the Great Recession. But really, as a business, we had failed. And what we were supposed to do, according to the way businesses operate, is we were supposed to lay everybody off because we didn't have enough work for them um, so that, that um, David Sanchez and I could get paid. Or we should shutter, go bankrupt and start over in some other iteration or join law firms or, or law departments or something, but we just refuse to fail. And, and that's been our mindset from day one is that we are going to make this work and, and we have. And so, and now it's, it's, we're turning away work and we've got work coming out of our ears. We work for almost all fortune 500 companies and the ones that aren't are really, really well-funded high growth um, companies, usually mostly gig economy companies. Uh, and so it's, I, I consider us to be successful now, but we can always fail. We just won't. I love that. I love that. It's like by any means necessary, right? Never, 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 ever give up. Do what you got to do. Now, so did that come? So now let's talk a little bit about you and where you come from and, and your background and you know, who, who, you know, inspired you, uh, growing up, did, did that attitude come from, I mean, you know, you're a, you're a, uh, a, a Latino. Um, I don't know where you're from. I want you to tell me about all of that, but is that where you got that grit and, and, how, you know, is it associated with your background? Uh, yeah, I, th I think it is. It, I definitely get it from my parents. Uh, my, my, my dad, um, came from a family of farm workers and as a small child, he was a farm worker. Uh, his, you know, the big successes in the family when he was a child were his oldest brothers and sisters who got to work indoors in a cannery. Uh, and, and they, they, they were their own network, right? There's, I think 10 kids, um, with my, my, um, father being the youngest and his oldest brother being old enough to be his father. Mm -hmm. And they helped each other out to get out of those living conditions and to get um, their parents out of those living conditions. And so uh, my, my father, um, he, his, his older brothers and sisters made sure that he went to college. They made sure that he got to go to a job where he got to put leather shoes on and wear a shirt right. and tie um, 
when he got out of college and um, and he served in the National Guard and 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 my mom, you know, she gave up. Um, she, my mom is still still with us. My father passed away about a dozen years ago, but but my mom, you know, she gave up her her opportunities when she was young to raise a family. My my older sister and I, and but then when we were um, like the equivalent of middle school age now she started going to school she went to community college she got her aa degree she went to cal state los angeles she got her ba degree then she got her master's degree all part-time i was the typist for my mom's master's thesis amazing one of, the, <laughs> one of the proudest moments of my entire life was sitting there at my mother's graduation for her master's degree i was so enormously proud of my mom and both my mom and my dad uh, just taught me, instilled in me that, you know, you, you, you do your best, you constantly learn, you constantly seek to improve, but you do it not for yourself. You succeed so you can serve others. And, and that's my, my mom, even though she's well into her eighties now, I won't say exactly how well, but she's well <laughs> into her eighties and she is still vibrant. She's still kicking. She's still running things. Everybody's every organization in her town. They're asking her to be the president or chair this or chair that because she takes care of business. Um, and it, it that's where I where I get it from. And and they get it from their parents before them. And I've tried to instill the same thing in in my daughters. Uh, and my wife is 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 amazing. She's a civil engineer. Uh, and has a very successful career uh, of her own. That is very, very, very inspiring. I'll tell you, you know, a lot of the conversations that I've had with folks, you know, I ask that because you never know where people come from or what their situation is. And I think if I, you know, one of the things that I found interesting is that for the most part, the the, the people, uh, the, the people of color with whom I've I've spoken have not really had come from that kind of humble beginning. And, and I was starting to wonder if, you know, it's, you know, it, it, it's just really interesting to me to, to talk to folks who have transcended um, uh, the odds. And it sounds like you really did. And so, and, and your parents really did. Um, what stereotypes do you feel like you've had to transcend, um, you know, throughout your personal life and your career? And have they been, you know, uh, wrong or have they been right? Oh, gosh, I, I don't know that we have enough time for all that. But <laughs> uh, I, I can tell you that the I see this all the time. And I, let me go back a step. My my parent education was critically important to my to my parents, and so they made sure that I got into a Jesuit high school, which is a, a it's a top top notch high school, and um, they they had this sort of informal affirmative action program where uh, and I, I looked in the yearbooks for about six or seven years, and it it, it this my feet my theory held true, which was they had an informal affirmative action program where 10% of every class was black, 10% of every class was Latino, 5% of every class was other, and the rest of it was white. Mm. And 
the the white kids they were wealthy i mean their 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 fathers ceos and executives and entrepreneurs real estate moguls etc and um oh my god the racist things that came out of their mouth i was called a wetback a beaner a spick on a daily basis at school oh wow uh, this is in high school. By the kids, and, by kids. By the kids, by the kids. Well, and the school tolerated it, right? What, right. what you got for that was a finger wagging. That was it. Right. You got, you got, if, if you called another kid a racist slur, you got a finger wagging and, and nothing else, not even a suspension, not a detention, nothing. I mean, you, you're, you're in the parking lot during the break and you got a detention. But you call somebody a racist slur and you get a finger wag. Right. Um, and so these same young men grew up to be CEOs and entrepreneurs and real estate moguls and lawyers. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a really valuable lesson in high school. And that is that as we get older, we put filters on. And we, we learn to modulate how we speak. And so these same young men who called me all these racist terms and, and my friends, uh, I, I, had, I was an athlete, not a very good one, but I was an athlete. <laughs> and so I hung out with the kids on the football team, with the black players on the football team and the black players on the basketball team and, and Latino kids that were also athletes like on the track team and the cross country team. And so we all hung out together and we all got called these things. Mm -hmm. And but what I learned is that as adults, people, um, they put on their public face and they learn to put on their public face. They learn to put on filters. And so then when I was at UCLA, I saw some of the same stuff, but less of it. And usually only when they were drunk. There are racists out there. There are people who harbor these sentiments that you, if you don't look like them, you are other and you are less than. Mm -hmm. uh, but they learn to say the right things, to be PC. And, uh, and, and so, and, and as a practicing lawyer, I've seen that too. Uh, and, and, and I've heard about, I, I have friends, I mean, I can pass, right? I'm sure you've heard the term, this person can pass, right? Oh yeah. You look, mm -hmm. you look pretty white. So if, if people don't know anything, they might just assume, right? Well, my name is a little weird and, um, and, it could be and, from and I, Spain or something. So like I could that, be though. from Spain, yeah, or, or you know whatever, right? And so, so it, it could be it, if you don't speak any Spanish at all, you might not even recognize where it's from. It just sounds different somehow. Uh, and so I hear things, and then I have friends who completely pass. Plus, they have you know really basic Anglo white last names, and the things that they share with me. Are appalling, and so I, I've seen a lot over the years. And then being at a small minority-owned law firm, you know, one of the things that we struggled with for the long, longest time, and still deal with on a rare occasion, is just the assumption that because we're a small minority-owned law firm, we do small stuff mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. we can't handle difficult things. Uh, our banking lawyers handle, you know, transactions worth tens and hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, they do really sophisticated stuff for some of the, the largest banks in the world. And our employment litigation team, we do single plaintiff work as opposed to class action work because we think it's fun. It's interesting. Mm -hmm. It's fascinating work to do. 
one of the things that we use to recruit lawyers from large law firms who are employment lawyers is you don't have to do class action work. And right. so you could say, okay, well, we don't do the big class action work. And that's true. But we have clients where we are their go-to California lawyers. They can use anybody they want to. And oftentimes we take over cases from large law firms, some, some of the best preeminent law firms in the country by reputation, where the client becomes dissatisfied and they call us and they say, we'd like you to take this case over. It's, it's 45 days from trial or it's 90 days from trial. Um, we had a mediation. Our counsel told us they were sure it was going to settle. There's a multi-million dollar demand. Richard, we'd like your team to take this case over now. And so we do really tough stuff. Mm -hmm. But oftentimes, if people don't know us, and this certainly was the case for the first, I don't know, 15, 20 years of our existence, is people assume we only do little stuff. And so I'd get these referrals for essentially, you know, small claims, right? $10,000 in dispute, $5,000. Right. And it's like, no, <laughs> we don't do that. Sorry. Um, and, and that and so, is, that so, is a stereotype. Yeah. yeah. That is a stereotype because Absolutely. you're, because you're Latino or because your firm is uh, Sanchez and Amador, that it must be, you must be. Uh, doing the small potatoes work and for small fees, right? Bill, your billing rate is really low. Yes, yes, and 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 that that's interesting as well because there's just there's a weird dynamic going on in the employment space right now uh, because you have these huge employment boutiques that are in a race to the bottom on rates, mm -hmm. and and then you have the full service law firms with their you know, really high rates. And so that's kind of our sweet spot is, is clients that want the sophisticated work that that high hourly rate commands, but they don't want to pay it. And they would love to pay the bargain basement rates, but they realize that what they're getting for that is not the quality that they're looking for. And so that's our sweet spot. And that's where we get our referrals. That's where once we get our foot in the door with the client and we can show them what we can do, then they end up sending us their whole portfolio of California employment work. And, you know, how do you feel about the, the what's going on right now? You know, I'm a, as you know, I'm a diversity. I focus on diversity recruiting um, and there's a lot in the, the news um, uh, these days about companies and uh, firms that are you know, wanting to to do better on diversity. Um, do do you get a lot of, of uh, contact from either firms that want to refer stuff to you or companies that want to bring you on because you're a diverse firm? Uh, I wouldn't say a lot. We get some. Um, usually, those conversations are that if if the if the diversity is what's driving it then it's usually not work that we want it's because mm -hmm. then it's okay we want you to do work for us on the cheap and we mm -hmm. want you to do our 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 simplest lowest work work because you're a diverse firm mm -hmm. uh, whereas the clients that we have the best relationships with they tend to look at it as we need somebody really good. And the fact that you help us with our diversity goals, oh my God, that's such a bonus, right? Right. So mm -hmm. that's that's the distinction to me is what's driving it. And if the client is just looking to add diversity, usually what happens is we end up on a list. 
and um, and you know we might get an occasional bone thrown to us. And I don't want to be on anybody's list, and I don't want anybody's leftover scraps. Um, I just, I'm too proud for that. My mother raised me to be too proud for that, <laughs> and so uh, we we don't want anybody's table scraps. Uh, and and one of the mottos that I have with my team here is, if it was easy, anybody could do it. And, um, and and usually I'll fill in the blank with some 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 very well known law firms uh, that I won't mention here. But but the we want the tough stuff. We want the challenging stuff. And and yes, it makes us gnash our teeth and and struggle with okay, how are we gonna how are we gonna deal with this one? But we always find a way. You know, it's funny, and I'm and I'm looking at your LinkedIn, and I love this. You have these little asterisks on your LinkedIn, like you know, don't, uh, about who you won't talk to, who you won't do this with. And I love the one that says, note to all legal recruiters engaged by large and mid-sized firms that would be a perfect platform for me and my team of amazing lawyers in our strong Fortune 500 client relationships. Don't bother. We have the perfect platform. Yeah, I get well, how do you really calls. feel, Richard? <laughs> I get these cold calls and these emails all the time. And it's like, yeah, no, I got people I mentor in your law firm and not interested. Uh, and so yeah, we, 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 it's, it's a little sandbox, but it's our sandbox. And we get to do things the way we want to do them with people that we, we respect and enjoy working with, both within the team and in our client relationships. We've gotten to the point now where we can be picky about who our clients are. And we, if a client is going to be uh, difficult to work with, we don't need the work. And, yeah. and so we're really fortunate that we get to pick who we work with, both as teammates and, and as clients. And, and that's, a, that's a beautiful place to be. My people, um, everybody on the team, they're constantly being bombarded by recruiters, both internal recruiters uh, at law firms, as well as retained recruiters uh, like yourself. And they, they could, all, every single one of us could make a ton of more money someplace else, but we wouldn't be practicing law the way we practice law. And so for us, that's, that's, worth, that's worth some money. Well, good for you. Um, I, I, I appreciate that, although I know that wasn't meant for me, but. <laughs> oh, absolutely not. But you all just flat out say, don't be calling my people, Merle, because, you know, I'll take that personally. <laughs> we'd have to, we'd, we'd have to go to blows probably. Um, so you also say that you're passionate about mentoring, mentoring young lawyers of color and career success, developing business, making partner and big law and starting growing their own law firms. I mean, that that is definitely commendable. So what, you know, this is an opportunity for you to kind of speak to those folks, you know, what, what advice, um, you know, just kind of generally do you have, or do you give? Oh gosh. I mean, that that's why I did the blog because th there's just so much, right? Um, but let, let me try and come up with the top three. Um, the first thing is that more important than your law degree or your job title or your salary is the relationships that you have as a professional. And over the course of your career, deep quality relationships with really talented people yep. is going to be way more valuable to you 
than your GPA, where you went to law school, what your first job was, what any of your jobs were. That's what's going to assure your career success. You can always get lucky and get a great job, but having that deep network of quality professional relationships is an insurance policy. It's a career booster. It's an opportunity multiplier. It's, it's all these things. And so relationships are, are, are key and spend the time to develop them. Don't just sit behind your desk doing the work and putting in your hours. Put, doing, the, doing great work and putting in your hours will keep you from getting fired. But it won't keep you from getting laid off if your firm blows up or goes under or has trouble, loses a big client, loses, you know, uh, practice area dissolves. So that professional network will save you in, in all those circumstances. So that, that would be number one. Um, number two would be have adult conversations. And this is something I, I have to come up with a better word for it. Maybe you can help me out here, Merle. But <laughs> what I call having, what I've taken to calling having adult conversations. And this is something that that's taken me many years post-adulthood to figure out for myself. Uh, but so much of the time, we have a story in our head about what's going on and about what people care about or don't care about and how they are treating us and what they mean when they said this, that, or the other thing. But we don't actually talk to them about it. We just get all emotional. We get angry or hurt or bitter or resentful or sullen or whatever it is. But we don't have an adult conversation. And oftentimes, if you just have an adult conversation with your employer, um, whatever it is that you thought was a barrier is not a barrier. Um, the opportunity that you didn't get, maybe you didn't get it for a very specific reason that's actually good for you. Uh, the, maybe the opportunity that you want, they didn't realize that you wanted or they forgot that you wanted and you remind them and boom, it's yours. Uh, and so it's really, really important for all of us, but especially young lawyers of color to have adult conversations. And if, if the response is, well, we don't really care what you think, um, get out and close the door behind you, then fine, get out and close the door behind you, go someplace else uh, where they're going to appreciate your skills and what you bring to the table. Well, I think, and that's a good segue into authenticity and and um, remaining true to yourself, right? Because I, I think that that, especially for for uh, uh, folks of color, lawyers of color, that's hard to do because we are always code switching and we're always, you know, a lot of people, like you said, there are people, uh, particularly people um of Hispanic descent who can pass, you know, if they choose to, you know, there are LGBTQ folks who can pass if they, if they choose to, black folks can't do that. Most of us, some of us can, <laughs> yeah, uh, a very most, small number, can, very few can, part, yeah. but I think that because of just, you know, historic, you know, how people have been treated historically and just kind of systemic bias. A lot of people are just afraid um, to be authentic, to speak up, to ask, you know, to ask too many questions because they're afraid they're going to lose their jobs. Um, I've like never been that way. I've always been outspoken and uh, very candid, which hasn't always worked in my in my favor. But I can look at my myself in the face. I mean, look myself in the mirror every day uh, and feel feel uh, good about it. I mean, what what would you say to young people who are worried about being their authentic selves? Well, first off, I, I think it's important to 
understand what being your authentic self really means. Um, because I think you should be true to your values, right? You should be mm -hmm. true to your beliefs and, and that's not something worth compromising, you know, uh, and whether they're your religious beliefs, your cultural beliefs, your ethical beliefs, you should be true to those. And that simply is not worth compromising. Um, and unless you absolutely have to, to like feed your family. Um, and uh, even then, I think that's a close call. <laughs> right. And, and and certainly it's a call that I'm, it, that's an easy call for me to make that, you know, I'll make do somehow, but, but for other people that can be a tougher call to make. And I respect that. But then there's the bringing my authentic self to work movement, which has to do more with, okay, well, I want to, you know, I want to be the same way I am when I'm with my friends. Well, you know what? Mm, nah, I'm not buying that one because it's, if you think about who you are when you're with your grandma. That's not the same person you are when you're with your friends and who you are with your best buddy that you grew up with versus who you are with the person you're on your third date with. Um, they're all you. You're not lying, hopefully. Um, you, but there are different versions of your authentic self. And so you can bring your authentic self to work without being everything you are with your friend group. Um, and that's just part of being an adult, I think. Uh, very different, though, from having to hide your, your beliefs and your culture um, and, and things like that. I agree 100%. You talked earlier or alluded uh, earlier to your blog, which is called The Color of Law, which I saw on LinkedIn as well. Um, do you want to tell us a little bit about who who gets it? How do you get it if you'd like to get it? Um, and how did it start? Well, I think we're up to like 12 subscribers now. Um, and so I, I, you'd think I would know all 12 names, but, but I, I don't. Um, so uh, here's how I have a, a, one of my dear friends is a, a, an amazingly talented lawyer by the name of Juan Her, uh, and uh, he's in house. And um, he and I, we maybe talk once every year or two, but every time it's just one of those deep, meaningful conversations. And I, I consider him to be a dear friend. And even though he's many years my junior, I consider him to be a mentor of mine. Uh, although he'd probably argue with that vociferously because he's one of the humblest people I've ever met in my life. Um, and uh, he was the one that really pushed me to write. He actually was trying to get me to write a book. And finally, uh, to stave him off, I agreed to do a blog. Um, and the, 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 the focus of it is, you know, less passing along the things that I pass along to the lawyers I mentor. I, I, I I mentor dozens and dozens and dozens of lawyers all over the country. Some of them, are, it's, a, it's a phone call once every year or two. Some mm -hmm. of them, it's a monthly check-in. Some of them, it's an as-needed, so it might be five phone calls in a month and then you know nothing for six months. Uh, it just kind of is all over the, all over the map in terms of, of frequency. But that's allowed me both to get better at helping to uh, – guide them and assist them in dealing with challenges 
as well as giving me a great perspective because I'm hearing from them in all these different iterations. Some of them are junior associates, some of them are senior associates, some of them are junior partners, some of them are in-house new, some of them are in-house in a managing role. Um, some of them are, are second year lawyers, some of them are 15 year lawyers. And in all different iterations, Fortune 500s, startups, stealth mode startups, um, um, uh, AMLA 50 companies, uh, little boutique law firms in, 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 in small population states, you know, kind of all over the map. And it's really given me a great perspective. And so I, I hear common questions, I hear common struggles, uh, I see common issues, misperceptions. And so I try to address those in the blog, basically to magnify the message um, that I give when I'm talking to, to young lawyers of color about their, their career um, issues and challenges. Nice, nice. Um, and I know that you uh, uh, like to mentor young lawyers of color. Um, and are you really involved? Are you involved in HMBA? Are you, uh, what are you doing uh, for, you know, to stay involved in your community? You know, that's a, that's a, that's a great question. And I, I'm, I don't know, I'm embarrassed is the right word chagrined to, to tell you that I really am not as involved as I would like to be in the community of Latino attorneys, um, either locally or nationally. Um, I used to be, um, but I have a, a limited amount of time. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the things that I firmly believe is that all of us, whether we are Asian American, Latino, Black, um, that we're stronger if we help each other yep. and not just focus on ourselves. Um, and so um, the majority of the lawyers that I mentor are actually Black and Asian. Um, Interesting. And, 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 one, and I seek out Latino attorneys and and uh, I'll, because there are so few of them um, out, outside of, of Florida with the vibrant, you know, very successful Cuban-American legal community, there, there's just not a lot of Latino business attorneys in the country anywhere, even here in Los Angeles. Um, right. You know, and and I, you know, I, I was involved in a lot of different organizations. Um, when I was younger, I, I've been on the boards of, gosh, a, a long list of different um, legal diversity organizations um, and task forces with the ABA and et cetera. Uh, but um, the, 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 the one where I'm deeply involved now because it's so focused is the National Employment Law Council. So the National Employment Law Council, it's attorneys of color practicing management side, labor and employment law. And so hmm. that's what I do. That's where I, those are the people I'm in the best in the best position to help. And we have an amazing program called the Academy, the NALC Academy for, for junior labor and employment lawyers of color. Uh, and so because I feel like for the time that I have, that's where I can maximize the impact. That's where that's where I spend it. Richard, this has been awesome. Uh, I am so glad that we had this time together. Um, thank you so much for being here to BS with me today. And thanks to everyone for listening. Until the next episode, remember that everybody is different and different is good.
Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. We hope you enjoyed the stories shared in today's episode of BS, Beyond Stereotypes. Join us next time when another authentic personality unleashes their uniqueness on the world. <laughs>